But I went out there, had a completely different experience. What was different? What did you not expect to see that really changed your perception of what it's like to be there, to be after? Yeah, so I remember like day one that I was there, uh, my dad had like, uh, I went up to the second floor of the place that he was at and um, there's this little tiny balcony. So I, I step out there and, you know, it kind of overlooks like this very busy street. And I'm just like, everyone's speaking one language. Everyone's speaking Farsi. I can understand everything that's going on. And all these people are very familiar to me. Like they're, I see my family in them, you know? I see, you know, that old guy pushing that cart reminds me of my uncle. Or I see that guy that reminds me of my grandfather. I see that guy that reminds me of a cousin and this. So I just started seeing um, something that was very familiar. Listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. In our first ever episode of Stories of Transformation, I sit down with Ali Baluch, an Afghan-American content creator. Ali was just 11 years old when the 9-11 terrorist attacks happened. He found himself having to be the one with all the answers and representing a country he didn't even call home. You learn Ali's story of being a third cultured kid caught between white America and immigrant America. He walks us through the first trip to Afghanistan, a trip that transformed his sense of identity and led him to want to be a role model for Generation Z kids of color by sharing his pride for his Afghan roots. We talk about his journey of becoming a YouTuber and a filmmaker with a large following, and how he uses his position of influence to serve and inspire underrepresented communities. As a third culture kid, getting into pop music, culture, and films was his way of assimilating to American culture. This part of the conversation really resonated with me because anybody who knows me knows that I learned my English through 1980s action films. So he took his love for art and his love for storytelling to make it into visual media. And he uses it as an opportunity to represent people of color doing really remarkable things. Lastly, Elise shares his point of view of the future of media, as well as a lot of important lessons that he learned when he first got to Los Angeles at the age of 22. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too. So without further ado, this is me and Ali Baluch. Ali Baluch, how are you doing today? Good, man. How are you? How's everything? Good, man. Good, man. Where are you located these days? I'm based out of Los Angeles, Koreatown, um, but I'm all over. Uh, I'm traveling New York a uh, couple weeks, DC a couple weeks, wherever the client is, that's where I kind of go. Great, man. So can you, uh, for, for the audience here, can you tell us exactly what you do? So you're a content creator, but what exactly does that sure. mean? Sure. So I'm, uh, I guess, a filmmaker overall, and I work with clients and I create commercials, promotional videos, music videos, short films, you know? So anything that's video production related, uh, I'm the best at what I do. That's fantastic. That's my uh, ego speaking. That's fantastic. We'll get into the ego a little bit later. So you also have a wildly popular uh, YouTube channel. What's that called? I I mean, I wouldn't say wildly popular. I would say it's just like popular. Uh, It's called The Apartment? It's called The Apartment with Asif and Baluch. It's a podcast that we kind of started... About three years ago, where we focus on creators of color, influencers, um, YouTubers, Instagram, whatever it is, any type of person that creates content that's a person of color. Uh, and we, we sit and we chat with them and we film it. So uh, I know right now the wave is filmed 
interviews and podcasts, but like three years ago, no one was really doing it, you know? So at that time I was like, I want to film this because I was listening to podcasts like in the car and I was like, oh, I kind of want to watch this interview. And then I couldn't, I could never find any interviews. So I was like, oh, it's not that hard to set up two cameras, three cameras, whatever, and then just film the chat, you know? Yeah. And uh, we did it and we we shot every episode in my apartment, you know, hence the name, the apartment. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's that. And then I I do a second podcast with uh, Fahim Anwar. He's a, Afghan American comedian, actor, mm-hmm. writer. He's based out of Los Angeles as well, and uh, and that podcast we we say it's the podcast about nothing. I, I think we both wanted like a creative outlet um, where it's less work. We don't have to worry about filming it, editing it, whatever. It's just audio. Sure, yeah. And we just kind of like shoot the shit and just you know. So um, that's wonderful, man. So you find you do you guys find yourself talking about like things more related to shower thoughts on a Sunday, or do you find yourself talking about more about uh, current events? Like what sorts of it things? It kind of bounces around. So both podcasts are very split. One, the apartment, we focus a lot on like race, politics, identity, identity politics, uh, and sometimes we touch on current events and just navigating the industry as a person of color and getting into that creative world. Great. Uh, now with Fahim, uh, the Fahim Anwar Dance Hour is what our podcast is called. That's uh, We talk about, yeah, it kind of goes over, uh, over everything. We kind of recap our week. We have a, a thing we call the Jabroni of the Week. Anyone that, you know, fit anyone who annoys us that week. Then it's, it's just a lot of like struggles that Fahim faces as a, a, a comedian, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fighting being typecast yeah. in acting. Yeah. Uh, so it ranges. It ranges from like silly banter to um, current political. I mean, we, we try. And that was one thing I, I told Fahim when we kind of started. I was like, look, I get very political. So we're, I'm, yeah. so I was like, let's not get political, sure, you know, sure. like I have a podcast where we can talk about politics, the apartment, but this one, like, let's just try to keep it very like casual, conversational every once in a while. If there's something that has to be brought up and talked about, we'll talk about it. Like earlier this year, uh, when the New Zealand shooting happened at that masjid in New Zealand, I was like, let's just touch on this and bring this up and talk about this. Cause it, it was, it was something that had to be talked about. But, you know, besides that, if it's just, you know, like, Oh, so Trump's being impeached. Like we're, we're just not going to touch on that, you know, yeah. cause there's enough pop podcasts out there with like has political pundits that try to analyze the political climate. So I was like, let's just be entertaining. So I really appreciate that recap in terms of the kind of work that you're doing now. Um, so let's talk about how uh, you got to where you are. Right. So let's talk about, oh, man. Yeah, man. I yeah. feel like I feel like uh, it's one of these things where you know everybody kind of has heard what you're doing, but let's figure out how, uh, what path you kind of took to get there, sure. and the struggles that you kind of dealt with, and yeah. and what you learned from those struggles. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, this podcast is about uh, transformation, transcendence, mm. things that you learn about uh, yourself along the way. Yeah. And so, um, so where were you from? Like, tell us about your origin story. Oh, like, man. how yeah. does this? Are you from? Are you from uh, Northern Virginia? Yeah, yeah. Born and raised here in Northern Virginia, like twenty minutes right outside. Well, yeah. thirty minutes without traffic. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. It was forty-eight minutes getting here, so it was about. Uh, and it's getting worse. Yeah, and, and this was rush hours. So, um, sure. yeah, usually, you know, I was born and raised in Northern Virginia. Mm-hmm. Bounced around, you know, Springfield to Reston to Centerville, and now my family's in Fairfax. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to Centerville High School, uh, and then I started studying. Um, when when you live out here, your options to be financially secure and stable are the doctor engineer route or the doctor engineer lawyer route. So those mm-hmm. are like the three 
you know, that like, I guess that goes across immigrant cultures that that's the three go-to jobs, you know, engineer, doctor. Uh, but then there was like the whole like tech side of things, IT, and everyone in my family kind of went towards IT. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm going to do IT as well coming out of school. It's just a secure job. There'll always be work, you know, tech and IT is growing. So it's not like a dying industry or it'll never be one, well, at least within my generation. Uh, so I kind of did that. I first, you know, dabbled in IT. It wasn't for me for like a semester or two in, in college. Sure. It just wasn't cool. Sure, sure. Uh, and then, I, you know, I was working like IT help desk at a commercial real estate development company. And I was like, I don't want to do this for like 50 years of my life. You know, I was like 18, 19 at the time. And I was like, I don't want to be sitting here forever, you know, just fixing computers and I always had a passion for politics. This guy at that company that I was working at, he was our like government liaison something at that company. And he was like, oh, what do you want to do? I was like, oh, you know, law and politics. And he was like, oh, I can get you an internship on Capitol Hill with this congressman, whatever. And I was like, all right, cool, let's do that. And I sent my resume. And then, you know, a couple months later, I'm uh, interning for this congressman in the, House of, in the House of Representatives. And it, that, that was a, that was an interesting time. It was right around the the AIG, the whole like uh, mortgage, the housing crisis. So 2008. Yeah, 2008. Uh, like within a couple weeks of me beginning my internship, like all that shit happened. Yeah. And so from there, it turned into a full-time staff position. So I was a staff assistant for this congressman and he was this Virginia Republican. Uh, But I was like, yeah. And I was like, man, I was like, I just need my foot in the door. That's all that matters. You know, like what they tell us. Yeah. And uh, it was funny because uh, the guy stepped down. He didn't run for reelection. The new guy who came in for that district uh, was a Democrat. And I remember telling the chief of staff, I was like, Hey man, like, can you, put in a word if they need an intern something. And he was like, look, I'm going to tell you this. And you need to remember that, like, you need to pick a side when you're on the hill. Tribalism yeah. and it's fine. Yeah, he was like, you can't, you know, he was like, if you came to me as a flamboyant Dem- Democrat, I I wouldn't have fired you. I was like, yeah, 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 you, you're right, you're right. I think I'm not a Democrat, you know. That's right, that's right, that's yeah. right, that's right, that's uh, right. But, the whole uh, time in your mind, you're just like, yeah. well, what am I doing here? I, I was young, so I was, I was on that Obama train. This was like the uh, election year. So like every time, you know, like every office has like a subscription to Time and Newsweek right. and all these magazines and this was the era where Obama's face was on everything and they would be tossing out these magazines and I'm like trying to collect them. I'm like, oh man, this is like historic. Well, I was young. I was 18. That's um, wonderful. Yeah. And then- You were um, 18. I was like 18, 19. I just turned 19 actually. Yeah, I just turned 19. So you were still in college. Yeah. So I was working full-time at the Hill and go work, go to school full-time. So I was working like nine to five and then my class would be seven to 10 yeah. every single day. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, and, and I did that for, for a bit. And then I, I start working at this other advocacy organization here in DC yeah. on like uh, 14th and K, uh, JDRF, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Great. And um, I did that for a bit. And then that's when I kind of started dabbling into film. Oh, that's fascinating. So, so, so let's take a step back. Yeah. There's a lot of information uh-huh. there. So you started dabbling into film, uh-huh. right? So what was it initially that got you interested in film like let's start by asking a simple question like what was the first film that made an actual impact on you oh like if we really take it back to like being young in a film just sticking with me uh i remember it was uh scorsese's casino 
Love that in movie. like 95, 96. And yeah, by the yeah. time it was out on VHS and it was rented, I'm pretty sure it was like late 96. Remember, there's this one scene where Joe Pesci puts this guy's head in a vice and he starts cranking it. My uncles uh, were living with us at the time and they were huge, like gangster fanatics, mob films. So like every Goodfellas, like all those Scorsese sure. and all those films I grew up on. But I remember specifically, vividly, there's that scene where uh, Joe Pesci puts this guy's head in a vice and he's just like, cranking it and it's like squishing this guy's head together and his eyes are pop bulging out of his head and I remember that stuck with me. So so that's really curious. So what is it about that scene and or that film oh, that, was, that made you feel like that was traumatizing. Like as I was like a six, seven year old and I was yeah. like just trials like, oh my God, like people can do this to one another. They can kill you know? Um but that was a, like one of the earliest things. But you know, I grew up my parents were immigrants, you know. Uh they 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 migrated here in uh ninety uh no uh yeah nineteen eighty seven. So they came here in 87 directly yeah. to Northern Virginia. Yeah, straight to Northern Virginia, Springfield. And then how long were they here before you were born? Uh, I was born in 89. So they're here for like a solid two years because they came. And then a couple months later, my uh, older sister was born in 87. And, and you have how many siblings? I have uh, two. I have a younger sister and an older sister. My dad was working full time. He was working like two jobs. My mom was like, you know, and they were going to night classes. And my mom was going to school and working at the same time. And so a lot of like, you know, raising us would just kind of be like, you know, uh, taking us out to either Chuck E. Cheese or the movies. That was our weekend thing, you know? And so really curious, like, what is it? It's always really curious about different diasporic um, yeah. communities here in the United States. And they end up going to places that you never would have thought, like the Somali population in Minnesota. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, what is about, what was it about Northern Virginia that had your parents come there? Uh, so, you know, it was a lot of sponsorships, you know, in the late 80s, they start offering visa uh, opportunities, uh, refugee status visas for a lot of the Afghans that were in the camps or in Pakistan or in Afghanistan. Sure. Um, it was just kind of like where the first person kind of gets sponsored. And I think um, my aunt was one of the first in the family that was sponsored and she came here in like 84 or 85 and uh, I think they were sponsored by like a church or something so uh when my family was coming my my aunt sponsored my mom so you know Fantastic. and she was based here in Springfield at the time or Burke so when they came that's where they kind of settled you know they they came here and then um from here, you know, then my dad started like bringing in His everyone, family. yeah, one by one, you know. Then how would you say that's interesting? Then how how many family members uh in its max capacity, yeah. so to speak, did you have uh, at one time in Northern Virginia? Oh, every everyone was here. All my uncles and all my aunts from both sides were all. I mean, like maybe like one or two straggled, you know. One one kind of like went to France. One went to San Diego. One kind of went to uh, Northern California. And like two, three were like in Afghanistan. But the concentration was mostly yeah, here. like ninety percent of my family members. So like, I mean, we have Afghans have big families. So yeah. I mean, aunts and uncles on both sides combined, like a solid, like maybe like. 20 some, you know, uh, aunts and uncles, uh, not including cousins, were all here in Northern Virginia, in Springfield, in Fairfax, uh, in Alexandria. Those were like the Annandale. The, the, like, it's all like within like 15, 20 minutes from each other. So, home for you really is Northern Virginia. Yeah, Northern Virginia. And home for my family as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming you were kind of born and raised in, in the region, or like you were raised in. I was, I, I was raised in a small little town in Pennsylvania. So, I was, I was raised outside of the diocese. Ah, actually. Okay, okay. So, what's really curious about that experience is that um, growing up in the diaspora, you in many ways still, uh, there's still value transfer because everybody that you know, uh, meaning your family and your extended family, 
even though your parents may be working two or three jobs, your 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 family your family essentially still is able to raise you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So in the context of living in the diaspora, there's still a lot of value transfer. Yeah. In the context of where I grew up, there wasn't that. Mm. When my parents are at work, the value transfer came from my best friends and their parents who were all uh, middle-aged, uh, sorry, middle-class white Americans. Interesting. And so what I'm curious to know is, uh, like, what were the benefits of, of living in an environment where pretty much everybody you know is your family yeah. in the context of, of the United States? And then what are the detriments of that sort of environment? So I, I, the plus side is you uh, you always feel comfortable at home or, or, or on the weekends. And I, knew, I know my, my younger sister kind of, had this uh, conflicting uh, identity issue growing up when she kind of got into high school. But for me, it was kind of like, you know, uh, Friday th- through Sunday, I'm just around Afghans constantly, you know? Uh, and I feel comfortable. I can, you know, speak Farsi and English back and forth with my cousins and my like uncles and aunts. I was around people who understood me. That's fantastic. Know? And then I would go to school Monday through Friday. And I'm in an environment, and this is the detriment where, like, people don't understand me. They don't. Uh, there are some things I kind of didn't, and not that I didn't understand. I think it was just I, I wasn't able to integrate and assimilate, you know, too uh, easily. Because, like, I, you know, growing up for like what four or five years, I'm just only around my grandparents and my uncles and my aunts and my parents. I maybe like one or two non-Afghan white. American friends that were my neighbors, you know, and outside of that, the, those two relationships, I wasn't really exposed to like white America or just any non-Afghan relationships, you know, like I wasn't put into like any, uh, um, you know, activities yeah. like sports or, or whatever. So the only people that, that I inter- interacted for like the very first part of my life for many years were just Afghans, you know, were family members. Yeah. So um, what was it like? So how would you describe yourself as a child then like amongst your family and then amongst, uh, I guess, strangers like in school? What was that yeah, like? Did so, you change? Did you have this like dual identity? Yeah. I mean, that happened a lot later in life uh, I, I, where I started developing this like dual identity um, where I'm like Afghan and Muslim here, but then I'm like, just trying to blend in at school, but we moved. So I, I grew up in Springfield for the first part and that's where it was just like completely white. Like everyone was white and everyone was like, oh, you're, you know, they, they just never kind of got me or understood me. Teachers didn't really understand either. Um, it was hard for me to like learn or, or, or grasp a lot of information at school. And then I moved to Reston and then the school I went to was predominantly like, uh, people of color, immigrants, immigrant, immigrant uh, you know, low. it was a very low income neighborhood as well. That was like a very nurturing community. Like, every, like we were all kind of the same, you know, we all had like parents who spoke different languages and had accents and this and that. So I never felt uncomfortable with people coming over my house because I would go over their house. And like our families were very, very, very similar, you know, yeah. even though they were from like El Salvador and we were from Afghanistan, yeah. um, there's still this commonality and understanding amongst us. So that was, that, that was nice. That was nice. And then, uh, later on, a couple years later, I, I moved to, uh, Centerville and Centerville was a predominantly white upper middle class area, not upper. It was just middle class at the time. It was like a very middle class area. We're talking like nineties. Uh, yeah. 99 Centerville was, was pretty, you know, predominantly white, predominantly Republican, uh, like I would go over to my friend's house and, you know, they would have Fox News on. I didn't, at the time, at that age, I didn't really understand 
politics enough to understand that like Fox News is very conservative right wing, you know, and um, or I didn't even understand. We didn't even have cable at the time. I didn't know that there was a CNN and MSNBC, a Fox, a, you know, all the other channels, you know. So, you know, I, I grew up in a very, yeah, very Republican and conservative uh uh, city. So the timing's really interesting that because you said it was about 1999. So two years yeah. later, yeah. the attacks on 11 happened. Yeah, yeah. So, so elite now, 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 can you help us understand like what it meant for you in terms of the significance of this event, how you processed it, yeah. how your family processed it, oh, yeah. and then how your community then processed it too? Because you are, it seems like right in this context, whether you're in Reston or Centerville, you're literally jumping back and forth. So, yeah. so. When when you first heard about the attacks on 11 as an Afghan American, yeah, where were you? Uh, I was in school. I was in seventh grade. Uh, I was in middle school, and uh, I was walking through uh, the hallways, and like you know, everyone was like saying like something happened. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. And mm-hmm. a friend of mine, this uh, Lebanese guy, mm-hmm. was like, Yo, they just flew a plane into the World Trade Center. I'm like. I don't even know what the World Trade Center is, man. You know, I was like, this means nothing to me. And then I think we were let out early that day. Oh, that I remember this white kid was like, yeah, it's some guy named like Osama Bin Laden or something. And I'm like, uh, this, that sounds? None of that's registering yeah. with you, yeah. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And then uh, I go home and, you know, it's all over the news and everything. And I'm like, oh, this is pretty intense. And then, you know, first thing they're talking about is the Taliban and, you know, and I'm familiar with that enough because, you know, like my family talks about that and there's footage of that and stuff. Did you find yourself asking your parents, like, what was going on? I remember I was like, oh, yeah, who's this Osama guy? And I was like, how do you not know? I'm like, I don't know, maybe I'm 11 and I don't know geopolitics, you know? <laughs> I, I swear, my dad was just like, yeah, you should know this. And I'm like, uh, should I? I I don't, you know? That's so curious. It's um, a young 11-year-old. So that was the response initially then. When did you under- start? To, when did you start to realize, like, the gravity of what happened. Was it then? Was it much later? Yeah, it, it was then. I think like the next day we had off from school and then all of like the neighborhood kids, like like people were freaking out like it's going to happen in our neighborhoods. Like the Taliban are going to roll up in SUVs in our suburban neighborhood in Centerville. So like everyone was like, we can't come outside today. Now, now this was chatter and or the sentiment amongst who? Everybody? Yeah. and, and, and Yeah. And then, um, cause I'd be like, all right, look, September 12th, we're off of school. Might as well go out and play basketball or like whatever that we used to do in the neighborhood. And the kids would be like, oh, we can't come out today. Cause you know, like my parents don't feel like it's safe. I'm like, yeah. what you think? Like bombs are going to come. Fl-? Like I, I, I couldn't grasp. I'm like, what do you think is going to happen? You know, like here in this suburb. That's actually you know? really mature of you to actually be able to process. Yeah, that. I mean, like, cause I was like. It's not like I'm going to walk down the road and there's going to be guys in turbans going to be popping out of the bushes, you know? Like, but, but what's curious about what you're saying is that the the, the overwhelming sentiment in America yeah. at that time, Ali, was that uh, we were under attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, I mean, granted, the United States has the, has the privilege of having two major bodies of ocean on both sides yeah. of its borders. So, like, your sentiment is, is actually correct. Yeah. But the overwhelming feeling in America was, uh-oh. Oh, yeah. We have to be 
uh, suspicious of all people that look like uh, yeah. Ali Baluch and his family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, anybody who's named Muhammad and oh, anybody yeah. who wears a turban, even if they're Sikhs. Yeah. Or not. They were the first that were, that were attacked uh, post 9-11. Like the first person, you know, uh, was, was a Sikh guy, you know. So what's curious about what you're saying is that it was very much uh, counterintuitive to yeah. what everybody else was feeling. Yeah. And I remember we were, like, you know, at the bus stop, you know, the uh, September 13th when we all kind of went back to school. Um, and like the weeks following, I thought, you know, maybe this is just another news cycle. Like this is going to kind of pass. It's just like anything else. It's hot for a minute and then it's going to disappear. You know, I remember like one of the weeks or so uh, at the bus stop, one of the parents were wearing like this all American flag outfit. I don't know if it was a onesie. It was this weird like outfit that she had on, but it was all like decked out in the American flag. You Interesting. Know? And um, she was talking to the other parents and she was like, this is like my middle finger to them. And I'm like, I remember hearing that in seventh grade being like, so you really think that these guys that that were that they're showing footage of that are in the deserts or in the caves of Afghanistan somehow is gonna see your this is before social media. It's not like she's posting this on Instagram. I'm like, and I just remember just like before getting on the bus being like, how the fuck are the and is anyone gonna see your stupid outfit? You know? Yeah, and, and I was I remember I was just like, this is so weird. It was just like a weird time, but then at, at the same time. I wasn't well informed of the political landscape of Afghanistan or the Middle East for me to be able to like have any type of like healthy debate or any type of conversation. September 13th, we go back, we're talking about it in all of our classes, you know, in our science class, we're talking about it in our math class, we're talking about. And I didn't have um, the language or the vocabulary at the time to be able to like hold my own. So at that time, I started kind of like being like, I don't want to deal with this. So I'm not going to say I'm Afghan. I'm not going to say like if I'm Muslim, yeah, I'm Muslim. But like, you know, like what is a Muslim? I don't know what a Muslim is. My parents are Muslim, you know, so I was kind of going through that. You know, I tried to be like, uh, I was very racially ambiguous, you know, like I, I could be Greek, Italian, Portuguese, uh, North African. I could be like anything, you know, uh, Spanish, you know, like I looked Latino, but my name was Ali. So like couldn't really get that far. Did you, did you find yourself introducing yourself as somebody else, depending on who the audience was? Did that ever happen to you? Uh, no, at times we all kind of had like little nicknames growing up. So I would like, maybe I would just stick with like a nickname, you know, and I didn't want to use Ali, you know, uh, that was like, again, that was up until like middle school, like at, after like 2002, 2003, I was like, fuck it. Like, fuck, fuck all this shit. Now, did you, that's really curious. Now, did you find, um, that that experience of 9-11, did that make you, is that, was that the catalyst for making you want to choose a career path? of impact? Is that why you chose to have this path of going down politics and kind of yeah, getting on Capitol Hill? And I, all that I, stuff? I, I think so. After post 9-11, everything was just political. Everything. Yeah. Everything yeah. was just foreign affairs, you know, mm-hmm. and being the only person of color or being the only like Muslim or the only Afghan in your class. It's like, all right, let's have a debate, you know, like, because people would say some like out of pocket shit, and then now I gotta be like, "Well, you don't know anything about you know." That's really interesting. Now, did you find yourself having to answer not only what I'm here to say now is defend, but also did people come to you to expecting the answers, some, even though you were removed? Right? Yeah, like, some even like teachers, like these grown thirty, forty year old adults would be asking me like questions, like, "So how is it?" And I'm like, "Think about a thirteen year old right now, fourteen year old." 
what would their knowledge be of like the political landscape, you know? And then like that was the situation where I'm like, I'm either taking things uh, where I hear at home or I'm taking things I hear at the news or on the news or making shit up on the spot, you know? (laughs) Well, right. Like ultimately as a 13 year old, you're so terribly impressionable. And uh, not only do you under, do we not, would, would a 13 year old have a very difficult time understanding like, the severity of that event, but yeah. also to processing the emotions associated with being related or having roots to that region of the world. Yeah, yeah. When nine eleven happened, did you did you feel like uh, a deeper sense of connection to um, your family's homeland? Did you find yourself being more interested in Afghanistan? Nah, man. Not I, at all. I, I fled from that. I was you like, stepped away. Yeah, right? I was like, yeah, I'm not Afghan. Ah, uh-huh, the opposite thing yeah. happened to you. Oh, I was like, I don't, because, you know, it's usually like strength in numbers and you feel comfortable in numbers, you know? Growing up in a predominantly Afghan household and community where all it was Afghan, um, I felt comfortable. I would hang out with my older cousins and I'd be like, awesome, these guys. Get you. Yeah, they get me and they're Afghan. But then when I would go to school alone, they wouldn't get me. I would, So I'd be very quiet. You know, I was, I was like equally a class clown. But I was also like very to myself a lot because I'm like, yeah, because I'm like, people don't get or understand. And so it was a little bit of both. So I'd be like, you know, at times I'd be the class clown, but then at times I just like most of the time I just like stay quiet or or dive really deep into pop culture because I'm like, this is the only commonality I have, sports and pop culture. Because other than that, I really had no like personality or identity outside of like out of that yeah, so at like nine eleven happens now. It's even even I'm more like, yeah, I don't want to associate with that side of me. So so that's really curious. So you want to step away from that that side of you that in many ways to the world represents something so terribly tragic and yeah. negative, right? Yeah. So help me help us understand. Um, when did you go through a transformation where you wanted to have nothing to do with the roots of your family and your identity? to the first time you actually went back to Afghanistan? That that happened uh, 2008, just finished my first year of college. And even up until then, you know, this was the MySpace era. You know, I'd follow these like, or I'd come across all these random like AFG, Afghan pride people that like, you know, their MySpace banners were Afghan this and the flag. And then a lot of like New York Afghans, New York Afghans are the weirdest Afghans. I'll put that out there, put that on the record. <laughs> You know, they're proud. Yeah. Yeah. And they were all like a lot of New York Afghans went through this weird identity phase of like, they think they're like mobsters and they're tied to John Gotti and all of this like whole mafioso like vibe. So I'd be on like MySpace and seeing all these like tough guy dudes from like Long Island and that just put a bad taste in my mouth. And then, you know, I'd go to like these Afghan sports things during the week, uh, uh, during the summer, like the Afghan soccer tournaments and there'd be fights. And I'm like, man, Afghans are animals. I had this internalized hatred, you know? And I was like, well, I don't get why everyone's like AFG pride this. I'm like, I, what's there to be proud of, you know? And, And then I'm looking at footage from on the news of Afghans behaving barbarically or whatever it is. And I'm just like, I'm like, what, like, what, why are, are Afghan? I'm like, I don't want to be this. Like, this is not me, you know? And I remember I, I screenshot too, something from like 2007. I made a Facebook status where I was like, I don't get 
the pride in being Afghan. And I've screenshotted it because I'm like, shit, I've come such a long way since then, you know? When you posted that, yeah. what were the responses that you got from no, that? No likes, no comments. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, this was a... Be a different world. Yeah, a different world. Uh, no one cared about my opinions. So 2008, you were saying? Uh, yeah, so in 2008, a year after I made like that Facebook post, I, I went to Afghanistan. I went to visit Afghanistan. I was like, I don't know why I'm going to go, but fuck it. So what do you mean? Did, did your parents present you this like uh, ticket no, or this opportunity? I was like, or? my dad was working at the time there. He was a project manager at this vocational training school where they're training Afghans in, in skills. So he went back oh, relatively he, recent yeah, after Yeah, so he 9/11. went back in 2003. Uh, end of 2003 or like early 04, he went and he started um, working at this like vocational training school where they would train Afghans. Because at the time, everything was booming, you know, in Afghanistan. Contractors were going there left and right. There's a lot of work that was being done there with all these contracting companies. And they would hire a lot of like foreigners, you know, like a lot of Pakistanis or Indians or Filipinos or South Africans to, to come in, like do construction and this and that. And they would pay these people like six figures and all these benefits, this and that. And my dad being the nationalist that he is would be like, why are we hiring non-Afghans when we can make a school, train the the locals and then have them get hired and keep the money in Afghanistan, you know? Well, have it lead to sustainable development. Yeah. So, uh, so he spearheaded this project. And so he was based out of there from like 03 up till now. He's still there, you know? Oh, interesting. Uh, now he's uh, working in historical restoration. He's overseeing a, a project there. Fantastic. So, I, and I get it. Like, it's his country. It's like where he was born and raised, you know? Even till this day, he's spent more of his life in Afghanistan than he has in the States, which I get. So he was based out of there and he was like, yeah, you should come you know, come visit me, this and that. And I'm like, um, all right, yeah, fuck it. Like, I'll go out there for a couple of weeks and um, see what the, all the hype is about. And, you know, maybe I think in the back of my mind, I was kind of saying, like, let me go there just to reinstate my hatred, you know, just to be like, this is exactly why I don't fuck with being Afghan, you know? Interesting, yeah. But I went out there, had a completely different experience. What was different. What did you not expect to see that really changed your perception of what it's like to be there, to be Afghan? Yeah. So I remember like day one that I was there, mm-hmm. uh, my dad had like, uh, I went up to the second floor of the place that he was at and um, there's this little tiny balcony. So I, I step out there and, you know, it kind of overlooks like this very busy street. And I'm just like, everyone's speaking one language. Everyone's speaking Farsi. I can understand everything that's going on. And all these people are very familiar to me. Like there, I see my family in them, you know, I see, you know, that old guy pushing that cart reminds me of my uncle, or I see that guy that reminds me of my grandfather. I see that guy that reminds me of a cousin. So I just started seeing something that was very familiar. Uh, I started exploring the city uh, and start meeting with the people. And we would take trips to like rural areas, you know, like deep into Salang and these, we'd go hiking. Me and my dad would like hike up this mountain for like an hour, hour and a half. Like we're deep in there and you're sitting on top of this huge mountain and you're looking all around you and it's nothing but mountain ranges. And you're like, man, I'm like the only soul for like as far as the eye can see, because it's all like rural landscapes. And then like two seconds later, you hear this little like bell and you turn around, it's like this kid with a donkey coming up on the other side. Like, where did this kid come from? Where's he going? And then he's like, hey, and then, you know, he comes up and he agreed to like, Salam, how are you? How's everything? Um, please come. My house is right over here. Please come in for, for tea. This hospitality. I don't know. It's like these little interactions that were just very sweet and wholesome that uh, I, I kind of held on to. 
And then I completely had this new perspective of Afghanistan and I saw the hospitality and I saw the the lifestyles. I came back really with a new perspective and I was just like, AFG till I die. I became those MySpace people, you know? I rock Afghanistan everywhere I go. A transformation occurred. Yeah, I have this, uh, for those obviously who can't see, I have this little like Afghanistan flag pin on my jacket. Now, like if I'll, if I'll do an event or if I'm like speaking somewhere, I'm rocking a Team Kabul sweater or I'm rocking my Afghanistan uh, hoodie. Uh, and shout out to King Noor LA that that kind of has this clothing line that has like Afghanistan merchandise. Like I'm, we're gonna bounce around a, a sure, lot. Sure, sure, so uh, when I was in LA, I start I teamed up with this YouTuber and we started making like these viral videos. And sure. then um, I my social media presence kind of uh, grew from there. You know, sure, sure. Uh, over the years that I, I'd work with this YouTuber, so I noticed that I have somewhat of an audience. Growing up, I needed someone to just be unapologetically Afghan. And just be like, this is who I am. And I used to see that in some like local guys, you know, but no one knew those local guys. And I was like, I have somewhat of a following. So any opportunity I get, I'm going to be wearing this Afghanistan hoodie. I'm going to be wearing my Team Kabul sweater. I'm going to talk about Afghanistan. So if any Gen Z kid at the time who could have been like 12, 13, 14, the only Afghan in his school would be like, oh, well, I see this kid out there in Los Angeles doing some dope shit and he's like unapologetically Afghan. So since then I've just been like, anytime I'm gonna be in front of a camera or anytime I'm gonna have an audience that I'm gonna speak to, I'm gonna make sure I'm rocking something Afghanistan. So, you know, it's it's visible. So it's like, I'm, I'm not running away. And if any younger person in the audience who's watching, they can see like, okay, this dude's not running from his identity. He actually, there's something that he's proud about and that he's embracing. So uh, that hopefully can give some other kid that was in the same position who was trying to run away from being Afghan like I was, or who had the self-hatred of being Afghan, could reconsider, you know? From hearing you speak, it seems like the everyday little acts of kindness mm. through familiarity of yeah. people that represent something either through your, your, the stories of your parents yeah. of their homeland, yeah. those stories now being yours, led to this uh, place where uh, it really unstitched you. It opened you up and let you really open up who you were to these people and vice versa. And so yeah. what was your father's role in all this? First and foremost, did he know that you were dealing with this self-deprecating sense of identity, right? The yeah. sense of um, not wanting to be who you actually are yeah. in some sense. Did he know that one? And number two, did he kind of, uh, did he show you the goodness that existed in a place of, of scarcity? Mm. Uh, no, I, I don't think my dad knew. Uh, I don't think until this day, there are so many of my relatives, my older uncles and aunts who don't understand this uh, identity crisis or this uh, the struggle with identity within the diaspora, you know, um, with being a third culture kid. So I, I know my parents didn't really understand or know or have an idea of what I kind of felt. Had you ever expressed that to them? No, not really. You know, I, I don't think I ever really spoke to them about it. Never really brought it up to them. Because you just didn't think they would understand? Yeah, or? and I was like, and I at the time didn't understand either. I didn't know what I was going through. Because I was like, uh, I, it was just so conflicting. And again, at the time, I wasn't able to articulate what I you know, was going through. So the sense of like transformation that happened to you in terms of like hating your part of your identity to loving it and, yeah. and, and trying to be an inspiration for our community. Yeah. 
How did you actually get there, right? So it's being surrounded by people who yeah. are similar to you, speak the same language as yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, was it that they were so welcoming? Was it that, that, that they, like, how did you find a deep sense of empathy yeah. for, for so people that you've never met? It, it, there was a, a sense of familiarity. And then also I, I, I saw firsthand the actual devastation of the impact of what at the time, 20 some years of war. Right. Yeah. I always had, as much as I would run away from the identity of being Afghan, I always, even when I was like 12, 13, had this very sympathetic role of like giving back to the Afghans and making sure whatever I, I can do to help out. There'd be like these Afghan film festivals at George Mason University when I was like in middle school. And uh, my dad and my sister and I would all like go and watch like these little documentaries that were done in Afghanistan in the sure. early. 2000s, you know, and it showed this one side of Afghanistan, this very rundown, war torn sense of Afghanistan. I thought when I was going to go to Kabul, I'm going to be staying in some like mud hut built out of clay type building. But, you know, I go there, I, you know, I was staying in Wazir Akbar Khan and then I went to Sharinao and saw the malls there at the Kabul city center at the time. And I, I was seeing a lot of things that I never thought I was like, oh, I'm like, no one talks about this side, you know, like I've never seen any type of footage of these areas of Kabul. Of the development. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know. Of the Kabul. progress. Yeah. There was this like Lebanese restaurant there that was in Wazir Akbar Khan that's not there anymore. It, it was all these spots where I'm like, oh, this is an Afghanistan that I've never heard about or I've never seen. And so it's, and I hate the term third world country. I, I always try to use like developing. Afghanistan's a developing nation, you know? This past, uh, last year, this time last year, I, I visited Afghanistan. Um, and I, you know, I, I went to very, very rural areas um, in like Bamyan and Balkh, you know? And I did see those very uh, clay home, mud homes, homes in the caves. Sure, it's there, you know? There are areas of Afghanistan where that is a reality. And then, I would come back to like Mazar, I'd go back to um, Kabul and I would see it's like a booming inner city, you know? So, um, but this was recent, but you know, at, at the time, my dad, I think he kind of saw my interest kind of peak. I would come in with like books, you know, uh, I'd be reading some like Khalid Husseini book at the time. I'm like 18, 19 and I'm reading like Kite Runner or uh, Thousand Blended Sons, or then I'd be watching this other documentary on Afghanistan while I'm there, you know, and I would do a lot of reading because I, I would have Facebook, but I was like, I'm not trying to spend too much time online because if I'm here, I want to like live here, like in the, in the now. Uh, so I'd be reading a lot, watching like documentaries, and I had I would have a lot of questions. I would have a lot of questions about you know Afghanistan being Afghan, the the political history, the history of war. Did you find your father answering those questions? Yeah, and and, and he did because my dad was very politically invested as well and and uh, very engaged. I was very intrigued about the Soviet war and how men dropped everything that they did, whether they were like in school a job, life, family, and they were like, this is what I have to do. I have to pick up arms and defend this nation, you know? And I was very fascinated by that concept, you know? Because I'm like, what, for me, living in the States, what would push me to ever be able to be like, I'm giving up everything and I'm just going to, you know, defend a nation? It would have to be extreme measures, I met with a lot of people who were like former Mujahids that fought in the wars. And, you know, you would talk to them now, they're like much older men. And 
I mean, it's very obvious to say this, but like everyone was young once, you know, but it's like when you know only people in their older state, elderly state, it's hard to believe that they were once these young, passionate, political intellectuals, you know? Well, what's curious about the Afghan-Soviet war, and I think your, your curiosity about it and your intrigue about, intrigue, um, about it is actually um, quite natural, right? Like in the context of the United States, if we bring it back here to where we are today, yeah. like those that didn't fight against the, the Nazis in World War II uh, felt like they were uh, missing out on something. Yeah. Right. Because ultimately it was, it's this idea that, um, people are fighting against a force of evil. Yeah. Right. And if they didn't, um, number one, they could be perceived as being weak or not contributing, but also two, it's this idea of having a major common enemy. And in the context of Afghanistan, the Soviets, as you well know, they were seen as the godless Soviets coming to Afghanistan to, uh, take over this Muslim land. And it wasn't just, Afghans fighting against the Soviets yeah, yeah. and atheism. It was all Muslims yeah. who came to Afghanistan. They saw that as the battleground. Yeah. So it was this power of belief. But see, that's one thing that I, I learned when I was out there was that there was an aspect of religiosity to it, right? And then a lot of the people that I met were very agnostic or like even at the time were very like not religious, you know? My dad included were like, yeah, we have faith in God, whatever, but like we're not doing this for faith, you know? What did they say it was for? Um, Like why did they fight then? What was- So that was the thing. So I I, like, that was the first time I went and then I went back multiple times. And every time I went, I tried to meet with as many people as I could. Friends of friends of my dad's or like people I would just kind of meet. I was hiking this mountain, Koi Tu Zoo in like Kabul and just kind of walking up it one day and I get to the top and there's like a little like uh, military state, like a checkpoint or whatever, you know, like two, three guards are stationed there and just kind of like, you know, with my broken farsi, just like trying to talk to them and then they kind of get into story, like they would start their stories, you know, like oh, I was here during the civil war and I was here during this time and I was here, stories about like people would fight for injustice it was like something happened in that family. Like my grandfather was executed, you know, or my so-and-so disappeared or, you know, a classmate of mine was beaten to death in front of me by the Soviet regime, you know? So that kind of sparked something. They're like, if we saw that happening to loved ones and people that we knew, it was only going to get worse. And once the invasion happened, the fully 79, it was just kind of like, it's this or we die. Or we're, we're going to be slaves to whatever it was, whatever it drew drew them. Uh, there was an aspect, a lot of men, you know, from all around the region, even the states. Um, I met this uh, black American from Tennessee. Yeah. Wasn't, I think he just converted in like the 80s he, or like in the 70s and he was in Afghanistan. Didn't lo- know a lick of Farsi or anything. And then there's like a Vice documentary about like this Japanese guy who kind of went to Afghanistan and... What's uh, that say about young people and young men? They're looking for a cause. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And there's a reason why they call the uh, the infantry uh, the infantry. Yeah. from infants, meaning they don't believe in the sense of mortality and they're willing to die for yeah. a cause they believe in. So I'd love to talk to you about this idea of like what your work represents yeah. to you and then how your work uh, then serves our community and communities that... Um, aren't necessarily your community yeah. in terms of combating, you know, uh, prejudice, Islamophobia, xenophobia. Yeah. So um, tell us about it. Like, what do you, what do you find that your work does for you and your community? I know 
my work is greatly influenced by being Afghan. Like, I wouldn't be a filmmaker if I wasn't Afghan. I know that for a fact. I don't know if this is me being biased or whatnot, but like Afghans are the greatest storytellers, oral storytellers of all time. You know, like you can sit with like a Kaka or a Momo and our uncle or whatever, and they will tell you these beautiful stories. It's sure, there's exaggerations in there, you know, um, but it's all for like, they know exactly how to tell a story. They know when to like slow down and when to like change the mood and they just keep you engaged in storytelling. I picked that up growing up, like being able to tell stories or like trying to tell great stories. And then I just pair that with like my love of like pop culture, music videos, music, but whatever. So I was like, I'm just going to take my love for art and take my love for storytelling and just make that into a visual medium, you know, and tell stories visually. Because I was like, more people will be able to hear stories or see stories that way than me going up to everyone individually and telling stories, you know. After I kind of graduated film school, uh, I moved to Los Angeles to start working at Nickelodeon. And I had this idea. I was inspired by the NPR moth series, NPR's moth series, where, you know, like uh, a person would just kind of go up to a live audience and just tell a vignette of a story, you know? And I was like, okay, I want to do that, but in Afghanistan and obviously on film. I was like 22, 23. I flew out to Afghanistan with like a camera and like a mic. Um, uh, a friend of mine sponsored me. It was like, hey, whatever you need, let me know. I know you're like this young aspiring filmmaker. If I can help you in any way, let me know. And I was like, yo, I, I, I need a mic. So he was like, I just wired you 500 bucks, go buy whatever mic you need. And I was like, yo, this saved my ass because I didn't know what I was going to do. So I, I, yeah, I bought like a little wireless lav mic and I went to Afghanistan and I just tried to like document stories, you know, and I tried, I did this little docu-series called Sadaoy Afghanistan. It was like a 10 part series. Each episode focused on like a different theme. One was a story of like hospitality and traveling one was the story of like um hope and one was story about like this and this so it was i want to capture unique stories told in a very afghan way you know and there was these very wholesome stories i was like there's enough documentaries enough news pieces on like death and destruction in afghanistan you can type in afghanistan on youtube and you'll get hundreds of pages of just like misery that was mainly for me, a passion project, but also I wanted to create this docu-series that I can post and like kind of connect with the diaspora community because I wanted millennials to watch the series and I wanted them to watch one episode and then be like, oh, I got to show this to my folks. And then they show their parents that video. And then I wanted the parents to be like, oh, let me tell you a story. And then a bridge is built between the generations, you know? So you want it to be a catalyst for bonding generations. Yes. And that was like, I made that intention going in. I was in Afghanistan. My cousin flew in from London to help me shoot this. And yeah. I was just telling him, like, we'd be like, I'm scared that this is like... It's not going to help people. Yeah, yeah, it's not going ma- yeah, to matter. Given that, like, no one really watched this docuseries, which is fine. And like, you know, it was a passion. It was something that I wanted to create and I did. But the people who did watch... Uh, who, who watched it would message me and like comment on the things or like send emails or whatever, or tweet me and be like, yo, I watched this with my family and my dad shared this story. And I'd just be like, it worked. Like it, it actually happened. Like people actually responded the way I wanted them to. I wanted them to watch it. I wanted them to show their parents like, oh, hey, look, here's this cool story from Afghanistan. And I wanted the parents to be like, oh, let me tell you more stories, personal stories. You know, given the small amount of people, viewers who experienced that, I was like, that's all that matters. I don't give a shit if it was like five people versus like, you know, whatever. Well, what's curious about what you're saying is like, ultimately it led to uh, 
this confirmation that you knew there was a need for that sort of yeah. uh, oh, yeah. sort of bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, I I liked it. I didn't have, in everything. I guess maybe it's selfish. Where I'm like everything I didn't have, I want to create, you know, because it's like I'm thinking about me here, you know. I'm like I didn't have someone unapologetically Afghan that had somewhat of a platform. Then I was like I grew up being disconnected from Afghanistan. I want to create content because I can, you know, mm-hmm. like I have the ability to create something and throw it up because someone's gonna do it. Why not it beat me? And this is again more ego talking. Why not do it right, you know? Because people can try, but you know, I felt like my quality would have been better. No, that's fantastic. So, I, hey, that's great. Uh, and also another driving point of was I'd go to my aunt's house or my whatever, uh, some relative's house, and they would have the Afghan channel up, and I would watch these god-awful music videos and commercials, and I'd be like, I can make something way better than that. And I was like, fucking, I'm going to go out and do it. And yeah. if I wasn't, yeah. if it wasn't for those awful, cheesy music videos and commercials uh, those on that Afghan channel, I don't think I'd be sitting here, you know? <laughs> That's I would really have left great. Virginia. I would have been. I would have done IT. That's great. That's great. So, so here's a question for you: What does media tell us about ourselves and our society? Given what you just said, and kind of this framework in which you're working. From? Yeah. So, media. You know, it could really be used in so many ways. You know, mainstream media, whatever's on television and stuff, and then there's like digital media, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, and then there is educational media. So. Right after 9-11, NYPD hired a contract to create training videos for NYPD officers. And um, like many publications have posted this story. And you guys can Google it. And these videos were used for like 7 to 11 years. I don't know, but it was used like a minimum like of 7 years. And they were super Islamophobic, super about like profiling, you know, a lot of misinformation. It can really shape everything. It can shape politics. It can shape policy. It can shape how we kind of see ourselves, how we see other people. I think power, I mean, it's always been in media. Power has always been, whether you trace it back to the colonial times, whether it was poems and newsletters and newspaper media or up into recent, which is like this whole digital wave of like online journalism, you know, like seeing things firsthand on the ground. You know, like I don't follow anyone from CNN on Twitter. I follow actual journalists that are on the ground in Afghanistan. Yeah. You know, some of them, they're part of like an Afghan network out there, whether it's Tulu or some other channel. Sure. But a lot of them are like freelancers and they're out in the field filming something and uploading it straight to Twitter. Like there's no middleman. It's like, and then you can follow these people, interact with them and ask them questions. Where did this happen? Tell me more information, you know? Yeah, that's that's incredible. There's no, uh, there's no monopoly over information. There's yeah. no, uh, there's no barrier now for... Uh, acquiring firsthand information from yeah. from from the actual source, yeah. and this is like this is strictly speaking of Afghanistan. I mean, like this kind of goes towards anything, whether it's yeah. the Black Lives Matter movement yeah. or any kind of protest, whether what's happening in Hong Kong at the yeah. time. Like we're seeing it from protesters, we're seeing it firsthand. Unlike there's no uh, agenda. You know, there's no like rephrasing and different perspective. It's like, no, this is like what I'm seeing what I'm what they're seeing right now. It's not edited in any way. And that makes media just so much more powerful. Yeah. Right. right? So it influences so much and it holds influence, whether it's social influence or like political influence. You know, media right now is going to 
dictate how we kind of, what we wear and what we dress and what, you know, um, the trends are. Or the information that we essentially absorb, right? Yeah. Like ultimately now, going back to this idea of 9-11, one intellectual said that uh, since there's so many different silos of information and this idea that algorithms give us what we want, we are in many ways uh, not on the same page with the people that we're disagreeing with. Meaning yeah. we don't have a basis for understanding the same facts and or the same reality. So this idea of uh, uh, the media influencing us is absolutely undebatable. So I have to ask, sure. I watched your TEDx talk oh, and no. uh, I, thought it was, I thought it was really informative, man. Oh, I think you. the biggest message that you have is this idea and this concept that I think is really worth sharing. It's this idea of symbolic annihilation. Oh, yeah. So Ali, can you tell us exactly what that means? Oh, man, uh, that was like two years ago. Okay, so symbolic annihilation is the absence of uh, representation in media of minority and marginalized communities because you're completely erased from the social fabric. So an absence is just as, is just the same as a misrepresentation. Yes. So absence and misrepresentation are equally impactful, you know? So the example I kind of used in the TEDx talk would be like if a TV show comes out and they only show male doctors and not a single woman doctor, or you only show women nurses and no male nurses, you know, you're, you're erasing that, you know, you're, you're creating these gender roles, you're creating these stereotypes. So we need heroes and sheroes that represent us on the big screen. Yeah. So we essentially can understand that like, Hey, listen, I too can't be that person. Yeah. Whether it's in literature or on screen or on podcasts, whatever, or music, whatever it is, I said, oh no, when you talked, brought this up, because like the topic of representation is like overdone. It's overkill. Like people created whole entire careers off this representation thing. And um, there's it's a totally lot of different now based on what you said two years ago. Yeah. It's kind of morphed, right? Yeah, yeah. And one thing I brought up uh, during the talk was that like representation doesn't equal justice. Just because we'll have, you know, uh, sure, we'll, we'll start seeing more hijabis and sitcoms and whatever. It's not going to solve or cure Islamophobia. And I brought up an example and showed statistics that in the 80s, there was this massive wave of like black sitcoms and black shows, whether it was the Cosby's, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. There's this whole long list of black shows that were like booming, that were like yeah. peaking during the 80s and 90s. But we that was like at the height of mass incarceration, yeah. you know. There's a whole deeper issue that needs to be tackled, a systemic problem you know of injustice and then the, and the remedy that you provided for that was putting people of color and marginalized groups in so, positions yeah. of decision the remedy power? for the the injustice aspect i i was like that's for someone else to talk about uh you're, you're gonna need like actual social scientists and sociologists and people who study race theory to tackle that I'm just a filmmaker, you know, I don't have the the solutions of tackling social injustices, you know, at a systemic level, you know. My thing was that, you know, there are a lot of people who love the film industry, who want to be part of it in some shape or form, but they're like, well, I, I can't act and I'm not an actor. I can't direct. I'm not a sure. filmmaker. To be in the industry, you know, like the people who are actually making decisions, the people who greenlight projects, Nobody went to film school. They studied uh, law or business. It's so many business and marketing majors or communication majors, HR. Like, there's a whole back end, people in boardrooms, and none of them have an art degree or a film degree, or none of them act. These are like the movers and shakers. These are like the gatekeepers in Hollywood. So it's like if you want to be a part of the industry and you only have an accountant degree, 
get into like accounting at Paramount or at Fox and then, you know, get in there, get in these rooms, you know? People often forget that there's an entire industry that revolves behind the camera. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, people who make films, like the filmmakers, only make up a small, small percentage of the industry. All the movers and shakers are all, you know, executives. That's great advice. With uh, non-creative degrees. There's a story of a friend of mine who was like an intern on this uh, on this show and it was very Islamophobic and she kind of spoke out and they kind of like rewrote the entire episode. That was testament to her just being present in one of the writer's rooms or just being there in the room. But it's like we shouldn't focus our energies to make problematic shows less problematic. I True. think we need to just be in there telling our own narrative. You know, we need to just take over and be like, no, this is the story. This is an accurate story. And we're not talking about like, uh, we don't need positive portrayals of Afghans or Muslims. We just need an accurate and empowering representation and portrayal. You know, we don't, we're, we're not chasing positivity. We're just, we just need something accurate, you know? And now if you're going to show an evil, bad guy, Afghan, uh, well, have some type of grounds or bases or depth to it, you know? From a person who's walked in those shoes, who's yeah. raised in that environment, who actually knows just by intrinsically being in that space, yeah. right from wrong, accurate and accurate. Yeah, you know, and uh, there was a movie that came out a couple of years ago, Rock the Casbah, uh, Bill Murray film. Bill Murray, and, yeah. um, you know, they, they screened it for the Afghan American community in LA and in the Bay Area, and it was destroyed and during the Q&A because we were just like, well, what was that? You know, like you used Afghans and Afghanistan as and use the people and the country as punchlines, you know. Mm. And uh, everyone wants to talk about like we're at an age where everyone's PC, politically correct, and everyone's a snowflake, and everyone's sure. so sensitive. And it's it's not that we're sensitive. I mean, it's just like we're just tired of sick shit. of it. Yeah, we're just like one. That's not funny. It's not funny. Maybe it might have been funny like thirty years ago. Like humors evolve. Like. Grow the fuck up, you know? People evolve. Yeah. Cultures evolve. That's not funny anymore. Like, people watch that and you're like, damn, you're you're really trying to get a joke. Like, try to be creative. And that's one thing that we talk about in uh, the other podcast I do, Fahim Anwar, Dance Hour, is this PC culture. He just argues one end and I'm, I try to argue one end. You oh, know? that's funny. Yeah. That's but, funny. Yeah. So, um, no, I think that's really insightful in terms of uh, where people can put themselves uh, if they want to be in this space where they can be in a position of influence. Yeah. And I too think it's like, you know, cultures do evolve. Cultures are like an organism. They continue to morph based on uh, the needs of the people that live in them. Yeah. Hey, so, you know, it's really curious about all the work that you've done mm -hmm. and all the work that people who are uh, influential and inspiring is we tend to understand, we tend to see who you are now as a product of like, not only all the goodness that you've gone through and you've experienced and or achieved, but also uh, all of the struggles. Like I think ultimately would be a better uh, representation of who we are as human beings and instead of introducing ourselves of all the accomplishments we've actually been able to make or do is uh, present all the struggles that we've gone through. Oh, yeah. I think that'd be a little uh, more telling of who we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in my like social media bio, whether it's like on Twitter or Instagram, um, sure. I always call myself the award losing filmmaker. It's so, yeah. it, but it's great in the sense so of, like, many film festivals and awards that I've just like gotten rejected or lost at. You know, so in order to get like that, uh, you know, Pulitzer winning book or that National Geographic photo. You have to take ten thousand photos before it get you get that perfect yeah, shot. Yeah. So, so I'm just curious to know, like, what could you share with us that um, 
It's something that you went through that changed you that you wish you wouldn't have to go through again to essentially achieve the same objective. Meaning like mm-hmm. something that was really good for you, but really, really hard that you don't want to go through again. Damn. Um, it can be personal or professional. Yeah. Yeah. So I think one thing I, I, when I first got to LA after my internship at Nickelodeon ended, uh, I start working with uh, this guy who kind of started a production company and he was talking all this about like um, projects, this and that. I trusted real easily because I'm like, oh, this guy knows what he's doing and he's got his shit together and this is going to be fantastic. Like this guy's got it made. And uh, I think at that point, this guy like took me down this weird rabbit hole of just being screwed over left and right. Um, like I would lend him money and then the guy would disappear and then he needed to borrow my equipment for a shoot and I lent it to him, but his partner was like, I'm not giving you your equipment back until this guy pays me. And I'm just like, oh, this is messy, man. You know, this is real messy. And this applies to LA culture and like it's kind of universal that anytime someone just kind of starts name dropping and starts talking a lot about the people that they know and the connections that they have and this and that, like it's never good news. Interesting. I remember this imam, I asked him a question like, oh, there's so many people that are so quick to say what's sinful and what's not, what's haram and what's not. And he had like a water bottle in front of him and one was like a full water bottle and one was like the one that he was drinking and he like kind of shook it and he was like, something that's empty makes a lot of noise. And he had the full one and he kind of moved it around and he was like, this full water bottle, like I can shake it and you won't hear anything. Oh, what an interesting lesson. And, I, and that applies to like people in the industry, like cloud chasers. I call them cloud chasers, you know, like people who really got a name drop. Like, oh man, I was just having like dinner with like Shia LaBeouf last night. And it's like, were you really having dinner with him or were you just in the same restaurant and he was across the restaurant? Like there are people that were just like name drop left and right. Like, oh yeah, I did a did a video with this celebrity. But then you find out that like they were just a production assistant running and grabbing coffee. But the way that they kind of hype it up, it's like they have this relationship with this celebrity. They went out to dinner with them. And then the people who are actually doing shit just don't really like talk about it. They don't show their cards, you know, like what they're working on is what they're working on is what they're working on. They're busy creating and they're busy making moves and they're, they're not there to be like, Oh, well, you know, guess who I, I just had, you know, I just had a great conversation with, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio. And it's like, did you really have a great conversation? Or did you just say, Hey, how are you? I'm a huge fan, you know? And if you did have a conversation, what were the fruits of that conversation? How can that serve this, this current situation? Yeah, exactly. And the thing about Los Angeles and I'm sure uh, like, DC and other um, industries is like you're going to meet people left and right at events you know it could be an after party or a screening or a mixer or whatever and yeah you'll probably run into Leonardo DiCaprio and you might have like a five minute conversation about like hey man I'm I'm a huge fan and and yeah you can say that you talked to Leonardo DiCaprio but like Exactly. What did you show for that? You know, mm-hmm. like there, like did you have a one-off where you just kind of met him mm-hmm. briefly? Because you know, like you forget about that conversation. He forgets about that conversation I, uh, the next day easily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he's not going to sit there and be like, "Man, remember that guy who was fanboying over all my work? I should hit him up." You know, like so people who are like you know who actually do take on meetings with whatever celebrity it is. You know, um, they're not going to like brag about it or talk about it. So the lesson is uh, be, be 
be very cautious of people who talk a lot yeah. and don't trust. Don't trust easily. I was young. I was 22, 23. I was like, yeah, I don't know anyone in this industry. And this guy wants to work with me. And yeah. I was like, and yeah, sure, man. Yeah, you need you need cash. Oh, I I, I believe that you'll pay me back, you know? So, uh, I, yeah, I, I definitely would say like not to trust easily, not to um, believe all the hype and just be very, very weary of like cloud chasers. I remember I started working with this YouTuber and he was like, he was really big at the time. We started hanging out with these other guys. Day one, like these new guys kind of came into like the quote unquote crew, you know? Sure, yeah. Uh, they were like a little entourage. I would take a picture with this YouTuber all the time, but I'd never be like, hey, tag me, you know? Because I, I never cared. For, I, I didn't. But the second like these guys were like, oh, hey, uh, can you uh, go ahead and tag me? My at is at blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, these guys are bad news, you know? And then like a year later, the guy realizes he was like, oh shit, these guys were bad news. I should have known, you know? And I'm like, bro, like they were clout chasing since day one. You just have to have a nose for people who just want to be there just to be there. Well, know? that's the catch 22, right, Ali? Like, how can you know what's not real if you haven't gone through that's like true. the trenches, right? Yeah. Like, what makes you wise is experience. And the only way to get experience is actually doing the things and failing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that's still valuable, right? I think one person once told me is never work with somebody, never work for somebody you don't admire. And if you find somebody that's like reeling and dealing in, in such a way that makes you uncomfortable because it yeah. literally goes against the principles in which you believe, yeah. in this day and age, it's okay to step away. Yeah. It's totally okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, man, this is great. I'm curious, I'm going to ask you uh, one more question. We sure. can talk about this, then go into like a rapid fire sure. if we could. Uh, is a media professional now, like yeah. what do you see... Uh, the future of media looking like? Like, what's the direction it's taking? What should we know about it? Yeah. Based on how it's kind of changed since you've stepped into it. Um, things happen organically, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of these media platforms, I mean, everything is going digital. Cable boxes are out the window, you know? Like, sure. now YouTube TV is trying to take over, you know? Like, YouTube TV has all the channels, whatever it is, it's just, like, subscription-based. Streaming is... King. That's the future right now. You know, like Disney's launching, NBC is going to launch. Surely someone's going to get acquired, you know, like because there's like HBO, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Netflix, Disney, someone somewhere, it's all going to merge. So that's one thing. Um, but when I say like you can't force it, it's like, for example, Instagram. Instagram had launched this feature called IGTV, Instagram TV, where you can upload like long clips everyone was banking on this like instagram hyped this up for so long like it's gonna drop instagram tvs and they dropped nothing no one did anything maybe like the first few uploads were something but it fell flat you know like it went nowhere and it's like you these things just grow naturally you mm -hmm. can't you can never put your finger on the pulse like right now tiktok is the wave yeah you know hot. yeah and and it's like how did it catch on like people did it ironically it's Gen Z's vine because there, you know, there's a gap. But these things come and they go. When it comes to media, you're just going to see more firsthand accounts, mm -hmm. right? You're going to see more like um, people creating content without a middleman, without gatekeepers, and mm -hmm. that's where you know YouTube thrives. Any kid can pick up a camera, make a video, a short film, and just throw it up on YouTube, and it could potentially get discovered and go viral or no one could ever watch it and maybe 10 people watch it. And uh, and that's the thing, like you can create something of quality content. Oh, and money doesn't always translate into views. So I remember when we first kind of started, uh, when I started working with this YouTuber, 
we would go to another YouTuber's like set. We would go and they had like a full on crew, like at least like 10, 15 grand was dropped in that video, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, lighting, a cinematographer and a set design and this and that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they would upload the video and like, they get like 20,000 views and we're yeah. like, shit, like we just half-assed this video on a camera, just me and the guy. Yeah. And now we have like 7 million views, you know? So it's like, you can film something on your vi- on your phone and that can go viral and get millions of views just because you have like a red cam, red dragon, you know, with like the best lenses and you shoot it beautifully and you light it beautifully, you're not going to get all those views, you know? And that's one thing that a lot of these media companies learn the hard way. They drain so much money. Like, oh, this YouTuber, we can like groom them and build them and give them great quality content. Like people don't care about that. Intimacy is king, right? YouTubers influencers, social media influencers, Instagrammers, everyone thrives or they grew and they blew up by intimacy. They brought in an audience into an intimate environment like their bedroom, put up a webcam and just talked to camera. And we felt like we were a part of their world. They would vlog and we felt like we were a part of their life. And there was this level of intimacy that we we uh, that viewers were drawn to. And a lot of companies thought they could manufacture like an influencer and it backfired. So that's that's like the direction that things are going to kind of go. I think digital media is going to continue growing. Uh, streaming platforms are going to kind of merge. Next thing you know, Instagram is going to make their own Game of Thrones. You know, everyone's trying to like create their own content. You know. Yeah, it's great. Um, so that's essentially going to be. Uh uh, that's essentially telling us that you're going to be continuing to make content and produce. Yeah, and I mean, even like corporate, like a lot of the clients I work with, like a lot of these commercials, like every like video is king now. Like everyone needs content, everyone needs video, and that's just kind of like every the direction everything's kind of been going in. Because that's the that's the way people want to digest the information yeah. now, right? Like they want to see it versus necessarily. Yeah, exactly. So like I work with this corporation that like I don't think anyone outside of like a handful of people will watch their videos, but they need content. You know, they need. Like people visit their site, and you know, it's obviously not going to go any viral markets. But like people who are interested in that company are going to like look them up, and uh, I refer to them as like video business cards. Oh, that's know? funny. So it's like, and that's what people need because at a time it was like websites were essential. You know, like every company needs a website, which if is you're still a business. You need yeah, a website, and it's still true they do. But now it's like every business. Needs oh, oh, video, video content. Yeah, and so many apps are popping up, and you know, so like I don't see things are just moving forward, and yeah. it's it, it's it's good. It's exhausting, but it's good. You know, that's awesome, man. Yeah. That's awesome. So we kind of mentioned this, but I think this is a really great place to kind of inspire others because as it pertains to human beings, you can either alleviate suffering or you can inspire yeah. purpose. And so I'm curious to know um, how do you how do you want or how do you hope that your work serves to inspire others? I just hope it connects with people who didn't feel heard um, and whether that's interviewing creators of color that were in the same position that the listeners in or I'm creating a docu series where people feel connected I just kind of hope that inspiration just connects to an underrepresented community whether yeah. it's the Avian community the Muslim community you know um, the immigrant community the immigrant community so I just hope that it's kind of like oh, I want to be a YouTuber and this Asian American YouTuber went through the same experiences that I'm going through and the same struggles that I'm facing and he overcame them, I can too. That's fantastic. Yeah, so I hope 
that kind of sticks with folks. It's wonderful. Yeah. So uh, I like to do something a little fun here. I like to go through like a rapid fire. Sure, so I'm yeah. going to ask you some questions. So kind of give us uh, the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, what did you want to be when you were in grade school? Oh, man, I... I moved around a lot. Like I wanted to be a garbage man for a long time because I would see these guys hanging off the back of trucks, and I'm like, "That sounds yeah." That yeah. When you're in fun. like second grade, you're like, "I want to <laughs> hang off the back of a moving vehicle," like you know. Um, but then I, I then I wanted to be a pro skater for a long time. Yeah. Like I took that. Yeah. I'd be like Tony Hawk, yeah, Austin. Yeah, man, I was yeah. like skating. My literal ass off. I fractured my tailbone. You know. Well, I'm glad you're. I'm. I'm sure your parents are delighted that you're not a garbage man and that you're not a professional. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then somewhere down the line, I was like, I want to work at Microsoft. And then I just kind of stuck at that. Yeah. From there on in. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, good. Um, who's one person dead or alive that you'd love to sit down and have a conversation with? Oh, uh, I was actually asking someone this recently. I feel like it's such a Muslim cliche guy answer, male answer, but like Malcolm X. I feel like he's someone you can just learn from for a lifetime, you know? There's so much you can pick up from him, you know? Yeah, man. He uh, he was remarkable. Yeah, he was. And and towards the end of his life, he was targeted, you know? And he kind of lived looking over his shoulder, you know? Mm-hmm. And he had a family. And for someone at that point to live with that imminent threat mm-hmm. of, like, it can happen any moment now, mm-hmm. but still be like, nah, fuck it, I'm going to stand up for... Die. What he believed in. Yeah, I'm gonna die. I'm willing to die for this, you know. And uh, it's powerful. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to just see how he kind of felt a lot, you know. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So um, here's something close to home. What's one thing you wish you knew about your parents that you have yet to ask them? That I've yet to ask them. That you're sort of hesitant to ask. How they met. <laughs> I'd be interested to know how they met and how they got married. It's just a question where I'm like. Uh, like, I want to know, but I'm like, do I really want to have this uncomfortable conversation? That's so funny. After hearing this podcast, you may, uh, you may, they may actually come to you and be like, son. Yeah. <laughs> just so I, you know. Like, my way of gathering information about my family is through my uncles and aunts. Like, I would ask them, so how did my parents meet? You know, or like, it wasn't until earlier this year I found out my mom was arrested in Kabul because she spoke out against the Soviet occupation. I was like, I'm 30 and you're telling me this now? Why am I finding this out now? And I had to like somehow like pride it out of her. I was like, yeah, didn't you do, uh, what did you do during that time? Like they wouldn't have brought it up. Hassan Minhaj has this one man show on Netflix called Homecoming King. And uh, he talks about like immigrant parents and he was like, immigrant parents love holding on to secrets. They love secrets. And these secrets come out of them like randomly and they just drop it on you and like later in life. And you're just like, man, I wasn't ready for that, you know? But yeah, I think that's one thing I'd ask my folks. Like, how'd you guys meet? How'd you get married? That's great. What's your go-to spot in Northern Virginia to go to, um, go out to eat? Oh, ah, uh, Bonchon Chicken. Uh, Korean fried chicken. In Annandale? Uh, There's one in Annandale, there's one in Fairfax, and there's one in Centerville. Fantastic. Okay, here's a bigger question. What's one problem that you wish human beings could solve in the world? Ooh, Uh, I'm going to be very, very vague. But um, injustice, because I feel like that can cover racial injustice, uh, economic injustice. Uh, it can cover so many forms. It just sucks seeing people struggle and being in a position where you can't do anything, you know, outside of putting a temporary bandage on something. Because uh, there are like systematic institutes in place that prevent this from happening. So mm-hmm. if we can just solve any form of injustice, mm-hmm. you know. That'd be fantastic. The world would be such a better place. And I think in, in the work that you do, you actually shine light on the injustices of the world, which is um, which is great, man. In many ways, you're a human rights yeah. advocate, and uh, the work that you do matters. And um, 
I hope so, man. I think that's a great place to kind of wrap this up. And so, yeah. so Ali, please tell us where we can find your work. My Twitter handle is at BaluchX, B-A-L-U-C-H-X. My Instagram is the same thing. My website is impressionistfilms.com. Uh, it just launched last week. Um, but not everything is up on there, too. Um, I have a YouTube channel. If you just YouTube Ali Baluch, you'll see both my YouTube channels. Like short films I was doing like right out of film school for fun. and. Right. Uh, my Afghan docu series it was called Sadoy Afghanistan. Great, great. And great. Uh, the podcast I did uh, or I'm doing one is called Fahim Anwar Dance Hour. It's on like Spotify and iTunes. And sure. then there is the apartment with Asif and Baluch that's on uh, iTunes and on YouTube. Great, yeah. great. That's amazing. What we'll do is we'll consolidate here on our end. We'll put it in the show notes so people can uh, know yeah. where to find you. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. Yeah, man. Appreciate you, Ali. Thank you Thank for you. having me, man. Okay, man. Thanks, man. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also email me with feedback at storiesoftransformationpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation and find others like you by following us on Instagram at stories underscore of underscore transformation and on Facebook, Stories Transformation. You can find all this information on my website as well, www.baktashahadi.com. That's B-A-K-T-A-S-H. A-H-A-D-I dot com. <laughs>